1: This week's episode has a trigger warning for potentially upsetting subject matter. Check the show notes at www.bitchesoncomics.com to find out more. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleanor. I'm the other host. My name is Sarah Century. Today we have an incredible special guest, Tina Horn. Oh, hello. I have to make sure to be incredible and special. That's right. We want you to feel a lot of pressure. (laughs) That's usually how I like to open things. Lots of pressure. Listen, Um, it takes pressure to make a diamond, so... (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Stay tuned for diamonds. (laughs) The creator of a special and amazing comic, Save Sex. Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. Oh my God.
1: We're so pumped.
3: We're so pumped. It's just delightful to be here with you. You know, Tina, I think you have such an interesting way of describing yourself. Like what's your log line? If you were like, I'm blah, 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 blah. What would you uh, say?
2: Oh God. Is it interesting? Um, uh, It's more just like exhausting. Uh, my way of describing myself is <laughs> exhausting and exhausted. Exhaustive. Um, Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> so I am the writer and creator of Safe Sex, not the concept, the comic book, uh, the science fiction comic <laughs> book, which is now available in its first trade paperback volume that collects the first seven issues. Safe Sex Volume 1 Protection available at, at your local comic book store. And then I have a podcast called Why Are People Into That that is all about sex, kink, gender, and love. I feel like if you love bitches on a comics, then you will probably love. Why are people into that? It is like Bitches on Comics. It's very feminist in a complex way that is engaged in the actual history and discourse of feminism which not all feminist podcasts are I would say just to be shady um and um <laughs> shade on
3: shade you on. know you
2: can say if I have a feminist podcast and that could mean like I'm virulently anti-porn you know and um, right. that is not the case with my podcast it is very pro-porn and very porny and uh very sex work and kink and queer and slut centric. And so, yeah, uh, I produce and host that. I've been doing that independently for seven years. And I've written a couple of other books and been writing articles for various news and culture outlets for many years. I've been primarily a nonfiction writer before getting into writing genre fiction in the comic book medium. And I really, you know, I love true stories and made up stories. I hope to continue to make both. And what else do I do? Um <laughs> I te- you know, I teach grownups how to have better sex and how to talk better about sex, how to talk good about sex. Um <laughs> And I have done a little bit of like intimacy consulting and like tech consulting in the like, Sex work in BDSM and sexuality realm for both theater and TV. I am super stoked that I got to be an on set consultant for the second season of Pose, specifically the Dominatrix scenes in the Hellfire Club. And that was a really amazing experience. What? And uh, I
1: never knew that even happened. That's, that does sound incredible.
2: Yeah, it was really rad. And um, yeah, I got to like give notes to Janet Mock. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, man. I know you know more than I ever will but um I noticed this thing I think maybe we might could be better and she was like you're right and then it like ended up in the show and I was very proud of that um uh, yeah you're, yeah okay you should be proud of talking to Janet Mock dude I, know, I am I very like, very proud of talking to that's Mock. so cool and yeah, so I I hope to do more of that as well. And I am, you know, like every other schmuck, I did get myself a manager and an agent and am working on pilots for both developing safe sex for film and TV, but then also I'm excited to write for other people's IP because, you know, I'm very like, I'm a control freak about safe sex, my little gaby. So it would be nice to like, babysit somebody else's intellectual property for a little bit. Yeah. So I do all of those things. I'm very tired.
3: (laughs) I was like, you could have just stopped it at exhausting, exhausted and exhaustive. And we've been like, yeah, that's a pretty great description. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's so exciting to have you here. It's just, you know, safe sex is such a unique comic i mean sarah and i you listened to the
2: episode where we had chingy on it made me it actually did make me cry listen i love flattery i was very flattered by it if you want to like move me or like touch my heart or like make me leak liquid out of my eyeballs probably the best thing to do is you know give me a fucking gold star or like some applause um but Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh But also what moved me so much about that episode, you know, because like Chingy is a friend of mine and has been so supportive of the book, but being just introduced to you guys and your work and the podcast for the first time, listening to it, it's just so refreshing to like, you know, there's that thing with podcasts where you, when they're good, like yours is, you kind of feel like you are like voyeuring in on a conversation. Um, (laughs) Right. And I was like, oh, I'm so happy to be the creep that is voyeuring (laughs) in on this conversation. And, you know, you guys like picked up so much of what I was putting down. And it just kind of made me feel like, oh, I'm not just screaming into the void. Like there are people who get what I'm trying to do and also are moved by it. That's the whole point of art for me. So
3: Excuse me while I mute my mic and ball my eyes out. That was so nice of you.
1: <laughs> yeah. We did not intend for that episode to be the rave about how great this comic is episode. We had kind of just wanted to talk about how sex workers are portrayed in comics. And it was basically just all of us being like, it's bad. It makes us sad <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> It's varying degrees of bad, (laughs) but like always bad a little bit, at least even comics that we walked away from and had pretty positive overall opinions, like Her Sister's Keeper. uh, we were still like, you know, there's all of these issues with it. But what kind of ended up happening was like, that was when the conversation was kind of igniting for us was when we got to actually say something positive, because it was basically just again and again being like, we didn't like this, we didn't like this, and we didn't like this. And then it's just like, but we loved Safe Sex, which was a great comic. Well, I'm so glad.
2: And like I was telling you guys, I learned a lot about sex work representation in comics from that episode, I did not know about the X Ranch. And <laughs> having not read it, I knew exactly what you guys were talking about, where there's a thing where something is really great. You're reading an issue of a comic or you're, you're watching a movie and you're like, oh, this is so awesome. And then it like starts to slowly dawn on you that the creators don't think the same things are awesome as you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, and you're like, Oh, this is actually being set up so that the thing that I think is rad is bad. Like you were saying about like in X Ranch, you were like, Oh, cool. Like a mutant brothel sounds great. Sign two tickets, please. You know, and then it was like, (laughs) Oh, the point of this is like some tired trafficking narrative or some white knight rescue narrative and uh oh my god and like the least ethical people
1: (laughs) all coming to rescue the board horse nightcrawler (laughs) literally dated his stepsister um (laughs) like and y'all want to come into the ex ranch and be like you're not being moral be like holier than thou yeah totally that was wild to me because it was bad enough that they're doing this at all. But these are the people that you sent to do it. Like, are you serious? Oh, man. Anyway,
3: I think it's like one of those things. And Sarah, you were saying this about queer rep as well. It's like, Everything that's great about this was totally an accident.
2: Yeah. <laughs> like, there is no way the people who wrote this wanted to make this badass, like, fat
3: lady who is so cool. Because obviously they, they punish her for being
1: fat and a sex worker. And it's just like,
2: good God.
1: That's me in Lesbian Vampires where I'm just like, she's so cool. And then I'm just like, oh, she's like the villain. <laughs> So oh, that certainly does add a little bit of a negative connotation to my experience now. But in the beginning, I just thought that it was really cool. She lived alone in a castle. And so. Um, <laughs> and then what yeah. happened? She died horribly. She died horribly is really the end of that movie and all of those movies. But what I was curious about was what made you initially want to this to be a comic specifically did you have other mediums that you thought of giving it a try through or was this just you always viewed it as a comic
2: yeah no it was always a comic and the order of operations was more that I got the opportunity to develop a creator-owned series and this is what I came up with so yeah I mean I could see it working in other mediums, but I was not working in this medium at the, at the time that the opportunity was presented to me. So that's what I thought it was your first comic, right? Yeah. So it was more of a case of function following form. Is that even accurate? Yeah. It was more like the (laughs) content followed the opportunity to work in the medium.
1: That's kind of incredible because, yeah, I I think that reading through it, I would think that there was a much longer resume behind it. And then I was looking and I was like, no, I'm pretty sure that this is the only one. (laughs) So that's amazing also. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I
2: suppose that like what you might have been picking up on with that is that the story is really informed by many years of both nonfiction work and lived experience like this was my first time learning how to write fiction on this scale but it was definitely not the first time that I've like traversed all of these ideological terrains let's
3: say I I don't know This is something I really want to hear the two of you talk about is part of what I see too is you bringing, yes, that narrative skill and and the years of lived experience and studied experience. I don't know what the fuck we call that yeah knowledge words and (laughs) then you know but it really does also each issue has a zine quality to it Mm. right like there's there's so much more to it than the comic itself and what happens there in my mind and we talked about this a little bit when i got to interview you for sci-fi wire like Mm. it blends that boundary between fiction and nonfiction. it says like yes this is fiction but also here's someone living the experience talking about their life as a sex worker here's other ways of understanding how these things interconnect. But I really, yeah, I want to hear you two talk about like zines. I don't have a question. I just have that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, did zines kind of inform any of this? Because I feel like there is kind of the quality of that, I guess, right? Like something that's kind of connected to a larger community and Mm -hmm. like, yeah, all of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, you just said it. I definitely came up in the like post-riot girl era of DIY punk and that definitely included zine culture and like when I was living in Oakland in like the aughts basically and I was just starting to get into working as a professional dominatrix I mean, basically, how long was I doing that work before I started making zines about it? Like, not that fucking long. And you can really tell from the zines. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, you know, I started writing about my ideas and observations and experiences about BDSM and sex work and sexuality in general. And then I like... Typed them up and then got on my bike and rode over to the corporate office store and scammed a bunch of copies and then rode my bike over to the like anarchist info shop and like put them <laughs> on consignment for like you know two ninety nine and then occasionally would go back and collect my percent uh, <laughs> of two ninety nine and you know just like kind of kept doing that and would also when I would travel oftentimes I would be like traveling. Professionally, and whether I was in New York or Toronto or wherever, I would always have my zines with me and go to the local info shop there and consign them there and just like have that feeling of glory of seeing my like shitty, sloppy (laughs) zines in the bin. And yeah, and so then there's definitely like an ethos of that kind of writing of like just put it out there and see what happens and you know I mean especially when you are wanting to write about something like sex like sex work like feminist politics like explicit slutty kinky sexuality where you know that you're gonna have to deal with a bunch of fucking gatekeepers and so you're just like I'm just gonna do this on my own terms and see what happens and then you know eventually you might get somebody cold emailing you and offering to pay you to do that same thing (laughs) so um it happened to me
1: yeah I think that the first way that I finally understood well because I was a zine kid definitely but I think that the first kind of marriage between feminism sex work I think that that happened to me through zines because I remember reading like Dan zine and like You know, there's kind of just this great history because I do think that it's a result of gatekeeping, right? And so that's as a sex worker at the time, certainly years ago, you wouldn't have been able necessarily to write through a lot of major feminist publications. And of course, that's not to incriminate any of the great ones. But, you know, it was true. There was a lot of gatekeeping for a long time. And I think that it still exists, but it's maybe maybe people are a little bit more wary around it, hopefully. But that's what zines were totally about, you know, and they did it for a lot of different communities. But I think that that was just in my own life. I probably always had some kind of awareness around it just because I'm not, you know, a shithead. But like, Mm -hmm. I, I remember specifically reading zines that were just like, no, feminism and sex work go hand in hand. Like this is the same thing, you know, and I think a lot of people especially, you know, 80s, 90s and, you know, early 2000s, I think a lot of people ended up reading a lot of feminist texts of the time and being like, "Ooh, like, you know, and kind of, oh, well, this person thinks that all pornography is criminal and exploitative and things like that and intrinsically anti-feminist. Totally. And I think that zines were the thing that gave me at least an argument you know, to be like, it's not, you know, it's actually a feminist thing. I'm so happy to hear
2: that. And I'm so happy that that resonates with you. And, you know, I I hope that people who are, who have read Safe Sex will also hear this conversation and recognize that the zine aesthetic of the book is not a gimmick, you know? It's like a part of the subculture that the
1: story comes from. And it's all about subculture, right? Like that's every part of, I mean, you know, there's the terrible fascists, obviously, but the driving point of the story is the subcultures that we find ourselves in, right? Totally. Yeah. Whenever you came up with the concept, Avery being probably the main character, I guess, what was your intention with that character? Like, why did you create that character the way that you did?
2: Well, there's, there's so many things to think about with Avery. I mean, I think that I wanted to have the point of view character be someone who was burnt out <laughs> right. and uh burnt out on sex work, burnt out on activism, burnt out on resisting fascism and kind of like explore that tension of what happens when someone has been fighting the good fight with all of their youthful punk energy for a really long time and then they're like as i've mentioned uh <laughs> Like, I'm very tired. Uh, And so, you know, I think that that part of Avery is definitely a reflection of me where she's just like, oh, God, enough already. But I did want to explore the tension of what happens when you start to make those concessions to safety, right? I mean, I think a lot of it comes out of once we named the series Safe Sex, you know, I'm a very like theme based, conceptual based person. That's just like the way that my brain works and like what I gravitate towards. And so I think that I like really wanted to explore with the characters and the perils that they go through and the ordeals that they endure. Like, you know, what, what does every character think makes sex safe (laughs) or makes like your sexuality safe and what are they willing to do to fight for that what are they willing to do to protect that and like the question of what is safety right like
3: that's a, exactly that's a big part of what is interrogated through the characters varied experiences and the plot yeah totally exactly I wanted to talk about something you said Sarah that I think is really important for how we we think about safe sex which is like the gatekeeper component and you were talking about it as well, Tina, but I have to say, I kind of feel like safe sex is a miracle. Like I think it's a miracle that it made it to publication, that it's got all seven issues that it's now a volume, you know, it just, especially with, and we don't have to get into it. I know that it was originally acquired for, or or brought up through dark horse. And then, Oh, it was, it was, it was vertigo. Vertigo,
2: vertigo. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Apologies. Safe sex was developed at vertigo. Uh, It literally would not exist if certain people at Vertigo had not taken a chance on me. And like speaking of zines, my podcast, Why Are People Into That?, is essentially like an audio version of my zines. And so the fact that someone was like listening in on those sort of unfiltered conversations about... Sex that I have on Why Are People Into That? and like had the notion that I might be able to write a fictional comic book. I mean, the comic is real, the story is fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, reached out to me and like gave me those paychecks and gave me those contracts and gave me that crash course in writing in this medium and also in the industry. Like, it wouldn't exist. Without that, and it's also, I think, like a really important object lesson in why it is important, even if you are doing what I've been trying to do, especially for like the past 10 years of my career of like trying to figure out ways to bring my ideas and aesthetics and work ethic out of the DIY indie realm and into some more mainstream venues and try to like learn those crafts and learn those disciplines and learn those structures and learn those industries and and how to navigate them that like continuing to make my punk zine shit in my case in the form of the podcast directly led to me getting like a dream opportunity you know and I think that it wasn't even just a coincidence safe sex is in direct lineage in my work and it's sort of my unfiltered work ended up being kind of like a proof of concept of like what I could do. So anyway, all of that is to say yes, it did. Start and that became else. like a comic and image. Like holy shit. And now and now it's that an image and image is such a good fit for a punk with dangerous ideas. I don't
3: know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that self-description. Yeah, these are dangerous ideas, right? Like what we're, what we're dealing with in safe sex is all these things that we've been told are bad for us or immoral or, you know, the same rhetoric that's been recapitulated throughout history for like, oh, but the children and that bullshit. And saying like, no, let's not start from that place and define ourselves against it. Right. We start in the dirty mind. Yeah. We start with the normal world is the world where sexual freedom, sexual multiplicity, gender identities of all kinds are all the norm. This is the beautiful. This is where we start. And then we go into the world where we do then have to think about what do these things mean within a fascist society, as Sarah was intimating. And I I think that that is a really powerful way to have a really hard story. Like, I love safe sex. And when I turned, like, to page three or whatever, like, essentially the ICE, the Gestapo, the parties, scary dudes with unmarked cars taking people. Yeah. They show up, and I was like, no. And then, you know, it's it's a powerful story of, like, how do we keep subculture alive when it's actively being targeted? I don't know, Tina, I don't know how else to say it except for like a miracle. It feels like a miracle. I felt like I was reading a comic that was like, here is all of your sexual and gender politics in a fictional story and they are fucking fighting back and middle finger in the air to the man and they win and they lose and they're good and they're bad and nobody's perfect. And it just, it's like such an invitation into understanding oneself and into understanding how purposefully, people who are fundamentalist about moralistic beliefs, have distorted our conversation around sex work, have distorted our conversation around being trans and queer, have completely distorted it. So we can't even imagine a world where that wouldn't be the case, right? But safe sex invites us to imagine you don't have to have a world where that doesn't exist. You can have a world within that world. And I just, I don't know, man, it's fucking
2: beautiful. I love it so much. (laughs) Thank you for saying all of that. And that's definitely the project of the book. And it means the world to me to know that it is reaching people in that way. And the thing is, is that we've talked a little bit already about like sex work representation. And like, let's use Her Sister's Keeper as a sort of counterpoint to... Safe sex because I had actually never read it until I listened to your episode with Chingy and you guys were talking about it and I was like, okay, I need to get off my ass and be a proper scholar of sexual representation in comics <laughs> and fucking read her sisters
1: keeper. This is the Catwoman comic, just to be clear to uh, yes. Listeners.
2: So her sisters keeper is a Catwoman comic. It's sort of in direct lineage, story wise or canon wise with. Frank Miller. Is her sister's keeper the first time that we see Selena Kyle as a prostitute or is it actually in Batman
1: Year One? Batman Year One, the Frank that Miller. That I'm aware of that was the first time. This is the continuation of it. But in Batman Year One, it was kind of where a lot of this was established, right? So we first see Stan. <laughs> the, oh, Stan. The, yes. That's where Holly Robinson is first introduced. And right. a lot of the themes that we kind of see a little bit more explored in Her Sister's Keeper, they have had their origin in Batman Year One. Her Sister's Keeper was 91. So, yeah, it's a few years later. It's important, too, to note that, like, Mindy Newell had a terrible time in comics.
0: <laughs> like, oh, my God. She's the, oh she's the writer God. of
1: the series. And it just... Everything I've ever read with her is just, like, she was fighting tooth and nail and, like, had all of these issues. And she was essentially, like, pushed out of comics in this pretty brutal way.
3: She was sexually harassed all the time. Yeah. It's awful. I mean, Sarah's told me some of the stories and they just
1: turn your stomach. They really do. Yeah. It doesn't have a lot to do with the direct product that we're talking about, but there's always that to keep in mind is is that this was somebody who was a writer for comics who didn't stay that way because of reasons. It's so hard, right? We don't have very good uh, histories of the creative
3: Process around some of these things, especially when it comes to because women.
1: editorial might have yep. been pushing yep. this or That's that. That's what I was so it's, say. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. really hard to tell because uh, she also did a really brief run on Wonder Woman. Which, when Ooh. she talks about it, she's like, "Yeah, there's like Aztec gods, and it's really offensive." Like the editor was pushing that. I argued tooth and nail, and it just, you know, I just got fired from the book, basically. But like, you know, those comics still have my name on them. So, yeah, I I don't know, I. I appreciate the things that Mindy Newell has done in the comics, but also there's things where I'm just like, I just have no idea what was going on. Okay. So in reading Her Sister's Keeper, something that
2: really struck me is this is the kind of story, and it's not uncommon where you get a little bit of a villain origin story, right? And like Catwoman is kind of one of those super villains that is like, sometimes she's, redeemable sometimes Mm -hmm. she's in love with Batman like whatever so often those characters are women right because it's like we want to redeem all we want to like redeem
1: mystique or we want to redeem Catwoman and it's always through like the male character's eyes right of course if they're redeemable or not it's like up to Batman not up to Catwoman Yeah, and also,
2: if they're redeemable, it's definitely about whether or not Batman or whoever, like, wants to fuck them. Yep. (laughs) You're redeemable if you are fuckable and lovable.
3: Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the pod. We're super pumped to have you here with us. You know what you can do to help us out? is you can rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. We're not even asking you to go to multiple platforms, baby. Just choose what you're already listening to. Pop on in there, give us five stars. If you give us anything less, I will cry. Then write a nice word like, oh, these bitches, that's good enough. We love it.
2: Um, but anyway... The thing that really struck me about Her Sister's Keeper was the sort of role of criminalization in sex work and the sort of, like, moral compass of the story. Because, like, in sex work politics, from the sex workers' rights movement, the, like, labor movement that is calling for the global decriminalization of sex work, There's a critique of the way that sex workers themselves are criminalized. So in the case of Her Sister's Keeper, that would be prostitution, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the way that managers are criminalized. So in the case of Her Sister's Keeper, that would be Stan, good old Mm -hmm. Stan, um, the incredibly broad Italian immigrant stereotype of (laughs) mobster, pimp character. And then there's the way that clients are criminalized and there's like, not really a whole lot of clients in her Sister's Keeper, I guess, which is interesting. Right. But like in 2020, we are living in a time where the critique of who is considered criminal for either just being themselves in public or in private or doing a job in our society in order to survive And then, who enforces the laws that regulate or criminalize those people? We are recognizing the flaws and corruptions in the systems that like construct the criminal and the law enforcement in an unprecedented way. And obviously, the movement for Black Lives and many other grassroots social movements have been have been saying it (laughs) for a really long time um Mm -hmm. but like people are finally are paying attention in america in a way that they maybe never have before which is horrifying and awesome and all the things right and so like for me and you make a really good point about mindy newell as a writer maybe the way that mindy newell like constructs criminality versus heroics in Her Sister's Keeper has as much to do with pressure that she was getting from her editors or publishers as, like, the story that she wanted to tell or the characters that she wanted to portray. But part of what I wanted to do with Safe Sex was create a world in which you know from the very first pages that, like, our heroes are people who are criminalized in oh, yeah. a world that is criminalizing pleasure and certain kinds of gender identity and certain kinds of artistic expression and certain kinds of relationships and love and that is actually the real world that we live in in 2020. So, it, like, insofar as safe sex is a dystopian fiction about a future where things are worse, it's like actually already this bad. And hopefully people are starting to wake up to that with the resurgence of Black Lives Matter protests and critiques of how it actually is time to not only abolish and defund the police, but also to pay attention to, like, why are some things considered criminal and why do we consider things that are criminal to be immoral and something that we need to be, like, tough on and eradicate? And, like, why do we consider the people who are in charge of enforcing those flawed systems? Why do we consider them to be, like, arbiters of goodness and justice? So all of that is really part of what I wanted to like expose and critique with this book
3: what I think is so unique about the way safe sex grapples with these real world issues is that it puts them in a plot right so there's there's <laughs> yeah. drama there's tension you know we're a little salacious like everybody reads kind of an asshole right like we're like ooh, give me the good horrible thing that's gonna happen that'll make me like feel good when they overcome it or whatever so that's all part of the experience of it but what I what I find so powerful is the way that you just present what happens. It's just there, you know, yeah. and, and you give the reader an opportunity to see how it impacts the people who are most impacted by it, right? Instead of choosing a different point of view, which obviously you would never do in your work, but you could write a version of safe sex that would be completely different if the positionality wasn't that of sex workers. And so I keep thinking about Denis and their experience with conversion therapy, which is essentially yeah. what Powell does to them. Yeah. And that's real, right? Like that, that is happening. It's so we real. Have states where it's not illegal. We have countries where it's not illegal. It's a hard thing to face as progressive people, right? To be like, we're putting good into the world, we're fighting for what's right. And we have to face that like conversion therapy is still happening. That black trans women are having their lives ended left and right, that trans people are just being discriminated against in general. And those things are real and we have to deal with them. And sometimes we don't have the tools to deal with how much they hurt in nonfiction ways, in reading the news, but we do when we can do it in fiction. It gives us a way to grapple with this pain. And you and I talked about this a little bit when I interviewed you for Sci Fi Wire. That's helpful. It's productive to be able to like, feel how awful this all feels. And to have this story of resistance, the story of triumph, qualified triumph. Yes, because it's all qualified. It's all fucking qualified. A thousand people dying a day from a fucking preventable pandemic. Like, yeah. yeah, that's qualifying. Every time I have a conversation, someone's like, how are you? I'm like, well, this is terrible. This is awful. I can't stop thinking about this. I'm having trouble sleeping, but I'm also fine. <laughs> and, and, and those things are all true at the same yeah. time. And that's what I don't know, man. You should make a million more comics, I guess. is my <laughs> pitch. Well, I, I, I hope
2: to. I hope to. <laughs> You know, you brought up Denis. Can we have a spoilerific Yeah, let's
3: conversation get spoilery. about Denis? If you have not read Safe Sex, issues one through seven, we want to give you a chance to pause the episode. We gave you a nice little teasy-weezy, and you can come back after you've read them. Or if you're like a person who doesn't care about spoilers like me and Sarah, you can just stay and listen and hear all the spoilers and then have something to look forward to.
2: All right, yeah, let's do it. Go, Tina. Okay, so like, this is really exciting because Denise's arc is not as much a part of the setup of the premise of the story, right? So I haven't gotten a chance to talk as much about them. And, you know, Safe Sex is definitely like an ensemble and it's important to sort of establish who the point of view character is. This is all like fucking shit that I've learned from like being new to fiction. So like, you know, Avery's kind of the point of view character, but then it kind of expands into this ensemble and you get more of a sense of each of the individual characters' backstories and their arcs in the course of the protection arc. And Denis, we meet them and they're this sort of submissive, meek, genderqueer character and they're younger than most of the other Dirty Mind characters in a way they're less burned out and jaded and kind of more of a Pollyanna about everything. And then by about, I think it's issue four, you learn that they ran away from home because they came out to their parents as being non-binary or genderqueer as a teenager. And their parents sent them to Reformation, which is within the safe sex dystopia, sort of their version of conversion therapy. So what that means for like the plot machinations is that Denis has intel about what is going on at the Pleasure Center, which is the place that our heroes are trying to break into in order to rescue some of the other characters, their friends and loved ones. And it's eventually revealed that while Denis was undergoing reformation, Dr. Powell, who's one of the main big bads of the arc, was experimenting with... A new form of technology where they implanted a chip essentially in Denise's head that makes it so that Dr. Powell can, with their like Fitbit, essentially their halo, can control their experience of pleasure or pain. And of course, this ends up being like weaponized against But also what it means is that since they escaped reformation, they've been walking around incapable of experiencing physical pleasure or pain. And so all of this is to say, like, this is totally an example of the, like, dystopian project of safe sex, which is to take something that is very real and very fucked up, which is conversion therapy, and then give it this slight... Sci-fi, weird science, horror twist, which in this case, anyone who has ever watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer will recognize as being blatantly ripped off from what happens to Spike about halfway through the series, which then of course like has an enormous effect on... Spike's character development and how he relates to the other characters and his eventual redemption. It's like well-documented that I'm extremely obsessed with Spike. So we can Um, talk about it. We we promised that we would talk about Spike again. (laughs) So we
3: got to come back to that. But I, I being non-binary and gender non-conforming, I found it really powerful to see that Denis was, so many things, right, embodied so many different aspects of what it means to be non-binary and also just to be queer in sort of a more broad sense. Yeah. I love that Denise is not super thin. Like, that actually means a lot to me. I think most representations of non-binary characters and people are just like, you know, a very thin androgynous white person with dark hair who's like kind of creepily pale. I'm creepily
2: pale. I'm not here to hate. But, you know, it's like, That's how what? Yeah. I mean, there's there's one version of androgyny that, like, has been getting a pass for decades. And it's the, like, David Bowie, Thin White Duke, Tilda Swinton, you know. And these are Mm -hmm. obviously people who I love. And that look is a sexy look. But I think that people forget that androgyny literally just means having qualities of both masculinity and femininity insofar as those things are constructed yada 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 but like people say androgynous and they immediately think of what is the name of the actor who's on billions asia kate Dillon. that's like another example okay well like let you have these gender non-conforming characters as long as they fit this one mold right and right, like, right the truth is is that there are as many different ways for androgyny to express itself or to like manifest in different people and be expressed by different people as you could possibly imagine. Right. And so we have so far to go with what is, what is allowed.
3: Totally. And I'd be hard pressed to find a person who, when you say the word androgyny pictures someone wearing a skirt because that's feminine. And it's like, why is anything gendered? (laughs) I honestly, like, I, sometimes I just sit in my study and I'm just like, and I'm not even high when I'm doing this. I'm just like, like, I'll be like writing a story and I'll be like, are they masculine? What is masculine? Does it mean anything? And then I'm like, you know, it's like I'm in like the twilight zone. There's like lights flashing past me. I'm like, I don't know. Um, so yeah, I, f- Denise, this is why I love Denise. I also love Denise because like you were saying, that meekness that they are presented with, actually is a ton of ferocity Mm. to choose to still live. Denis has other options, but to choose to live and and to live with parts of yourself being taken, claimed, tarnished, whatever we want to say, by a cis gay white man, it's painful. But the, the act of resilience is the ferocity, right? Like to me, the choice to find other people who've been impacted by this system to then go back in, oh my God, to go back into where you were literally tortured to save someone else. I have chills all up and down my arms. You break down a lot of binaries, right? Where it's weak or strong, good or bad, victorious or at a loss. And you muddle those in a way that I think is really productive when we're having these conversations around sex work, gender, sexuality, kink porn, all of that, because we're working in a flawed medium of language, right?
2: Like mm. <laughs>
3: These words only mean anything because we've agreed they mean something,
2: right? Oh, now you're getting all semiotic. On it. Oh God, I, I love that shit. I'm always <laughs> like, Sarah,
3: what does anything mean? She's like, oh my God, I don't know. But yeah, I think that that is a really productive space for fiction because the taxonomy of queerness isn't going to save anybody. Yet, labels are helpful. Yeah. To the extent they are. Right. So if we can work in a space beyond that, where, and and I don't remember, do characters like identify? Do they use terms like bisexual, pansexual, trans, or do they just live? I kind of don't
2: remember. There's not a lot of taxonomy. Yeah, right. That's what I was thinking. On that, I mean, that was really intentional for me with Sylvia. You know, my friend Morgan Page, who wrote the intro for the volume one paperback, we were at like a queer fellowship writing retreat many years ago. And she gave a talk with one other trans writer about just sort of this like crash course in trans representation. And it was really illuminating and it was really generous of them to do that. And like something that she said that has always stuck with me is... If you're writing and you say a woman walked into the room and then, you know, you might describe how that woman looks or how that woman behaves when she enters the room. And she was like, yeah, you can just write a trans woman enters the room. And then you could just do all the same things that you would if you were describing a cis woman. You just say that the character is trans and then whether you're writing a script or you're writing fiction, or even if you're writing nonfiction, then the reader knows that that character is trans and it it doesn't have to have anything to do with the action of what's happening in the scene. It doesn't even have to have anything to do with the particular character development that is happening with that person. Like they're just trans and you're letting people know. And that was really powerful for me to hear from a trans writer. And like, with Sylvia, I kind of wanted to do that. But I didn't want to reveal that she was trans in any specific way. But then I also didn't want any... I wanted it to be beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was like not intended to be a reveal or uh, disclosure, which is the name of an amazing documentary that's on Netflix Right now about trans representation in cinema, but like, I didn't want it to be a crying game moment, you know, I didn't want it to be exploitative or shocking or anything at all. But at the same time, I didn't want it to be like, Sylvia has a secret and like, only we know what it is. I mean, there's a lot of things that's cool about working in comics, but like one thing that's cool about working in comics is that you have the visual element to work Mm -hmm. with. And so one of the solutions that we had was that I gave the art direction that she should be wearing a jumpsuit that has a trans symbol on the back. And if you know what that symbol is, then, you know, that also doesn't necessarily mean that she's trans. Like, cis people can wear trans symbols. But, uh, you know, it kind of, like, gives you a hint. And that jumpsuit is the colors of the trans flag. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember that suit so distinctly. Yeah. Yeah, it's an awesome outfit that you totally want, right?
3: (laughs) I want it so bad. I have to say the thing I'm most devastated about is that I didn't find safe sex until after all the merch was made.
2: Well, not to skip ahead, but we're probably going to do a Kickstarter for the next volume. Oh, fun. I think it's not going to be too complicated to have one of the rewards be from that merch line that I did with Jack the Stripper's Strippers Forever store. So I think that there will be an opportunity to get sex, love and torture shirts or dirty mind hats or pillows that say, can you explain the gap in your resume? Um, Oh, God. Oh, man. Yeah, that was just like a little limited run when the book first came out. But like, obviously, now, over time, we've gained even more fans. So you'll probably be able to. Get that. And also, if you wanted to do a special order, that could maybe possibly <laughs> be <possibly laughs> arranged. So just just get at me. Get at I me will. about that.
3: I will. And you'll let us know when the Kickstarter happens and we'll make sure and get it out there.
2: Oh, yes. You will be tired of hearing about it by <laughs> the time it's done, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Impossible. Um, but anyway, going back to like, you know, trans or genderqueer representation, I mean, with the knee, it was as simple as being very clear in the script, like this character is non-binary. They use they, them pronouns. The end. I think I made it very clear in the first scene where you meet Denis that a character, I think it's Sylvia, refers to Denis and says they're new to the dirty mind. So it's like, get with the program, everybody. We got it. Okay. It's relevant to their character in the sense that like, of course, this young non-binary person would have been oppressed in the world of safe sex and then their oppression and their trauma and what they've been through becomes like very relevant to their character and it's relevant to their ordeal but it is also relevant to like what makes them special and powerful Going through what they went through is the reason that they have the special knowledge that they do. And it's the reason, as you said, that they like have this will to do what's right because they know how bad it can get. And hopefully what they've been through will like come through as a superpower more and more in future storylines.
1: Mm, I love it. So take it back a second. This obviously all is great conversation. In relation to her sister's keeper, and you were talking about how is safe sex different? How is it kind of a continuation of this longer series of stories, I guess, in comics? Or, you know, how does it stand apart from those things? You know, obviously, that's something that we've talked about a little bit at length in the Chingy Nia interview. But what I wanted to note is that When you open up Her Sister's Keeper, there is a graphic scene of violence Mm. against a sex worker. And I want to talk about how violence is positioned in these stories. Because how does, you know, safe sex open in a totally different way? And there's a lot more positivity around what's happening. But it's not a graphic scene of violence. That's for sure. Throughout comics history, we have... Again and again and again, the same stories, essentially, where even in something like the X Ranch, you have these characters who are super powered and yet they're completely helpless whenever people come in mm. to hurt them and they do nothing and they have no power. And it's the same from hell, you know? Mm. You just see these women get murdered and like there's no resistance. They have no ability to resist and they have no capacity to inflict violence back. They're portrayed as being complete victims, right? And of course, that's nothing that we see in safe sex. So I just wanted to talk about how violence is positioned because we have in the first issue, the violence that comes from the fascist state is very clear as something that is oppressive and consistent and something that we have to have a sense of worry about. But nobody is helpless in this story, not completely. I mean, the thing that stands out to me is whenever I believe it's Avery that just pops that heel right into that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> into the guy's eye. Yes. It is not not just any guy, a cop. <laughs> yes, specifically a cop who, you know, in Her Sister's Keeper, we talked a little bit about that, too, how their position is this heroic force. And that's consistent, obviously, across many mediums, but certainly comics, in from hell, you know, this guy who is clearly a raging misogynist, is still, you know, portrayed in a sympathetic and heroic light. You know, not sure why Alan Moore would be invested in portraying misogynists in a sympathetic light, but, (laughs) you know, here here it manifests.
0: (laughs) Yeah, man. Alan Moore is, like, the
2: perennial problematic fave. Yeah.
0: You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dallowance and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Well, okay, so I have a couple of things that I want to say. First of all, I posted this on Instagram, but the thing that has been happening in the discourse that I think is really important, which is like that we need to be critical of all the representation of cops in popular culture. And that, like, when we say, yes, all cops are bastards, or yes, all cops are bad. In real life, like, we also have to say that about our fictional faves. So, like, Scully is a cop. (laughs) Like, my friend just got a new cat and was like, I think we're going to call the cat Agent Dale Cooper. And I was like, that's really great. I love Twin Peaks. I love Coop. But, like, I just need to say, (laughs) Coop is a cop. So you are naming your new kitten after a cop. And she was like, well, he you know, we talked about it and he wears a suit and he's like a federal, I'm like, yes, you know, federal agents even are worse. cops. <laughs> federal <laughs> agents are cops. They're cops. So like, let's just be yep. real about that. And like, mm-hmm. I've definitely been involved in conversations about whether superheroes are cops. It's complicated, but there's this too, I think Mindy Newell's credit. Actually, like, really powerful panel in her sister's keeper where Catwoman is smacking Batman with her whip and she says, You're just another cop, aren't you? Smarter, cooler, more seductive, but a cop just the same. And I don't do cops.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that's my favorite part almost. It's
2: actually, you know, for something that came out in what did we just say, the early 90s, I actually think that that is really astute. And accurate. That seems like a little bit of a um, trying to like sneak in a critique of the idea of like, who is a criminal? And like, what does it mean to be a vigilante and take justice into your own hands? And like, yada, yada, yada. But going back to what you were saying about the first pages of Safe Sex, you know, the truth is, is that yes, the first few pages of issue one of Safe Sex are of a joyful sex party and it's not somebody's idea of what an orgy or a play party would be like and it's not symbolic of what some character is going through that they are like degrading themselves by like going to an orgy it's a portrait of what play parties are like created by someone who has been to a lot and thrown a lot. And I took great pains to put a lot of specificity into these scenes. And yeah, so the first thing that you see is pleasure. And you have this voiceover of Avery talking nostalgically about what that pleasure and what that freedom means to art and community. But then by the first page turn on the third page, you do have a scene of violence against sex workers. It's cops, it's the party, it's the government invading violating, infiltrating, and brutalizing this thing that has already been established as representative of pleasure and freedom and joy and the things that our heroes are going to care about, you know? And so that was like a hard line for me to toe, figuring out how to be real enough to do justice to like the real stakes that these characters would be facing, while also not just putting more imagery out there of sex workers and queers being brutalized. And, you know, that also was, again, to get into, like, spoiler territory, that was also, like, a question that I really had to grapple with when it came time for, like, upping the stakes towards the sort of third act of this arc, you know, in issues... um, five and six and seven, I love these characters and they represent my friends and my family and my community and my movement. But also it would be like infantilizing for me to protect them from stakes that in real life they're not protected from. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like, I really wanted to make it clear that people are going to get injured, that people are going to get mutilated, that people are going to fucking die, that they're, you know, as you've alluded to, that there are going to be moments where they don't achieve the thing that they've set out to achieve. And, And, you know, that was really important to me. And I think the real difference there is a matter not only of representation in the story and in the characters, but also representation in the creators. Like, I'm a cultural critic. So I'm very aware of tropes that not only I'm sick of in terms of things that are representative of my identity, like I'm really sick of sex work tropes, like, you know, the beat up hooker, or the dead hooker, like you mentioned, and I'm obviously really sick of a lack of female subjectivity and it's just so much so much lack of female subjectivity and then like I'm sick of barrier gaze and I'm sick of all these different things but also like I'm a queer cis woman and like I'm not trans so I'm trying to listen to the discourse and listen to the cultural criticism from trans people of like what are the tropes that they are tired of and trying to circumvent those as well and those stakes are really personal to me and when I do get pushback from editors or from publishers or even from, I mean, the the art team of this book is fucking amazing and I loved working with all of them. But, you know, if somebody portrays something inaccurately or in a way that I feel like perpetuates a trope that I'm tired of, I'm gonna fucking say something.
3: And I think we're all the better for it, right? I, I actually think this does segue... Nicely into the last thing that I wanted to talk about, which was just white queers. Like, we're all three mm. white and mm. queer. And I think what's so powerful in Safe Sex is that the capital B betrayer <laughs> is not Avery. You know, a woman of color who is set up to be seen as, like, having betrayed the cause in some mm. ways. But actually, Jones, who, mm. you know, they, they idolize Jones. And you get why, yeah. right? Like, Jones did so much for them. But I think there's something really powerful in the way that Sylvia and Jones have to face off again. We won't say what happens because we do want to make sure you all read it. But in that face off moment in issue, I think it's seven. It starts in six and continues into seven. That makes
2: sense. I was thinking of like the gas canister. I was like, I think the gas canister is from six. Can I just say that's actually the gas canister is a really good example of me learning to write fiction and learning to write in a visual medium and just like learning to write in comics because when I wrote that scene that's in what I referred to with my first editor as the sex graveyard, um mm-hmm. <laughs> I like wrote that scene and I was like, Okay, these characters and these characters try and hide, and these are the special skills that they're trying to use to like evade capture and like yada yada yada. And he was like. My first editor was like, so can we do something that makes the scene like a little cooler? And I was like, what do you mean? Isn't it already isn't it already cool? And he was like, I don't know. Like, what if, what if there's like smoke? <laughs> and I was like, why would there be smoke? I don't, what, that, why? And he was like, because it's a comic book. Because it's a comic book. And I think that that was like a really good, like humbling thing for me to learn. Because then, of course, I like took that as a prompt and was like, okay, well, if it's smoke, then I guess they obviously would have experience with protests and like smoke bombs are used in protesting to confuse riot police. And then I like Google image searched smoke canisters. And the first one that I saw was purple smoke. And of course there's a lot of Prince homages in safe sex because (laughs) I am obsessed with Prince. The name of the dirty mind is an homage to Prince. And I was like, oh, purple smoke? Yeah, yeah. That would be really cool. And he was like, see, perfect. And then, like, <laughs> and then when Jen Hickman was drawing and coloring that, it was like, oh, yeah, this looks much cooler. <laughs> like, so, just I really do want to put out there that, like, the process of making this, and I hope that the process of reading it and being a fan of it is like, yes, all of this political stuff, all of this cultural stuff but like, also all of the political and cultural stuff you can find in my nonfiction work and you can find it in my podcast. This is a fucking comic book, and I really (laughs) wanted to... I've loved comics my whole life, and I think that I underestimated how much the cool action stuff that was happening was informing the things that I do remember loving about the comics that I grew up on. I remember what happened thematically, conceptually. I remember what happened between the characters. I remember this like really crazy moment of body horror or something like that. But like the reason that I remember it is because the stakes were being set up with these really well-executed action scenes that had all of these elements that made them memorable. Anyway, that's my like little craft rant about writing an action adventure story. I um, love it. Uh, but anyway, so we, we were talking about the face-off between Jones and Sylvia.
3: Yeah, I, I just think that it is a great moment of understanding what it looks like to see someone betray the movement.
2: Yeah, you got it, man. That How was painful. the thing that you said on the podcast before that made me cry, where I was just like, you even used the word comrade. You were like, this is what happens when you're like, comrade becomes an assimilationist and I was like yes (laughs) That's, (laughs) that's that's it you know but again it's like what I was saying about Denis where it's like the project of making genre fiction and making dystopia and like making something that is as Jen Hickman the series artist of safe sex put it when we were on a panel at flame con institutional horror right and like so with Denis it's like Denis has gone through this real-life horror of conversion therapy, and they've ended up with this sort of sci-fi, supernatural, weird science thing of this chip in their head that someone can control, right? That is, like, to our knowledge, not something that is possible in science in 2020 right now, right? And, like, with Jones, it's also, like, the emotional reality of what it is like for your girlfriend or your ex-girlfriend or your comrade, your leader, to see them spouting the rhetoric that you used to rally against together. The emotions of that are are so painful and so real and so relatable, I hope. But then it's bound up in this sort of, again, like weird science of Joan's light spoilers, because you find this out early in the series, being brainwashed through torture and like The horror that I wanted to play with with that is kind of inspired by the monster trope of the zombie used to be your mom but is now a reanimated corpse that just wants to eat your brains. Like, it's not your mom. You got to shoot her in the head. Or, like, this vampire talks like your boyfriend and has all the memories of your boyfriend and looks like your boyfriend, but he wants to murder you and everyone that you love. It's like not your boyfriend anymore, right? So like that or like pod people, aliens, body snatching, mind control, like any of that kind of thing. Like that's the horror that that's meant to invoke, but then it's couched within this hopefully like real life resonant thing that happens to all of us, especially those of us who are involved in social movements where we're trying to fucking change the world. And it's really hard. And sometimes people get burnt out and exhausted. And like, you know, the idea of like brainwashing as a metaphor for how susceptible you can be to like be seduced by things being safer when you're really burnt out is definitely something that i wanted to explore with this book well
3: i think you fucking did
1: (laughs) (laughs) um i know we're like pretty close to time sarah did you have anything else you wanted to add nope i think that we covered a lot of interesting stuff that i'm gonna think about
3: (laughs) yeah i'm like oh my god we could have done like an eight-part series Yeah.
1: God, you
2: even you asked me about whiteness and I like didn't even really talk about whiteness and how, you know, there's the possibility that part of the reason that Jones was broken by reformation also, you know, may have to do with her white fragility. Even this like Mm. powerful leader who everyone like idolizes and looks up to maybe also like white supremacy has um, made her soft (laughs) as Mm. it makes so many of us soft.
3: I'm going to think about that. I'm going to go reread it. But yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about. You've created such an incredible work that it has so many layers that we could do this all day. (laughs) Um, It was so fun to talk to you about Her Sister's Keeper. I think Sarah and I have both thought about that work a lot and about the highs and lows. And it's nice to have like a nuanced conversation about like, Yes, this part is like, ooh, but this part is like, whoa. And that's how I evaluate things is on a ooh to whoa scale. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) I don't know. It's just like so nice to to catch up and thank you for being on the pod. And and please let us know what we can do to support you. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you?
2: Yes, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Tina Horn's ass, which is spelled the same as Tina Horn. SASS. That's T-I-N-A-H-O-R-N-S-A-S-S. And yeah, Safe Sex Volume 1 Protection is available now wherever books and comic books are sold. And we are working on the next story arc that I am pretty sure we're going to go straight to trade, which I, I need to come up with like a better way of saying that because straight to trade reminds me of straight to video which is like not a good thing <laughs> happened to movies in the 90s so i'm gonna i'm gonna uh come up with a different name for that but yeah i think we're conceiving of it as more of a graphic novel than a series again it's like the only comp that i can think of for that of like a series that then like the next installment of it was a movie is x-files and i love x-files but like the x-files movie is not good so i'm <laughs> I'm like, please, please don't, please don't associate what we're working on with X-Files. What was that movie called? Fight the Future. I like
1: God, it was so disappointing.
2: The bees. The bees. (laughs) Oh
3: my God. No. And like,
1: oh my God, it was totally just their way of writing Scully out of the last half of the movie. So then we're like following around Bonehead fucking Mulder. (laughs)
2: Like, save the day, Mulder. Like, what what, what an example of someone that I was, uh, Mulder, that is, that I was so so hot for as a young bisexual it's like part of the bisexual creed to be attracted to both Mulder and Scully um but mm-hmm. uh like oh god it was so hot for Mulder and then like doing the X files rewatch I'm like oh no 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 no
1: <laughs> I'm gonna say that my attraction to Scully as a lesbian has really held up <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no she just keeps kind totally. of totally she's like a, she's really, a cop really though. she is a cop she is a cop, um, but Gillian Anderson isn't, so.
2: No, no. <laughs>
1: She's a cop, but she plays one she, on TV.
2: She most um,
1: certainly, she
2: certainly oh is not. Um, uh, yeah, uh, can, you can think of her in uh, in Hannibal instead. Um,
1: I do. Yes. I <laughs> so do. do I, so Definitively, do I. <laughs> I do. <laughs> oh,
3: and on that note, we're going to go be queer and look at Gillian Anderson. Yes. We love you all listeners thank you for being with us today and tina we can't thank you enough a for making a fucking badass comic but b for being here with us today
2: thank you so much for having me it has been a real pleasure
3: We are a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot t-c-h-e-s-o-n-c-o-m-i-c-s at gmail.com and yeah remember there's no i'm bitch
1: if you'd like to support the podcast you can do so by rating and reviewing us on itunes spotify or stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts i'm sarah century and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and twitter and instagram still sarah century on those
3: I'm Essie Fleenor, you can learn more about me at EssieFleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at Essie underscore Fleenor.
1: Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at ChurchfireMusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at EarthControlPill.BandCamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the
3: Indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization.
0: Hello dear stranger, I'd like to introduce you to something new, or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery, following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world, in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favorite children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Burnt Wine have been described as Umberto Eco meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.